0: Hello and welcome to the second keynote from Climart's Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival. This event was recorded live at the University of Melbourne and features Miranda Massey from New York City's Climate Museum. We're proud to say this is a special deluxe version of the podcast episode and that it's not just only audio, but there is a visual element as well. When Miranda makes reference to her slides, you'll hear this sound. And when you hear this sound, just take a look at your podcast app if that's what you're using to listen, and you'll be able to see the slide Miranda is referring to. If you're listening to the episode from the website or the embedded player, this would be a great time to start using a podcast app. You've got Apple Podcasts for free if you're using an iPhone, Google Podcasts if you're using an Android phone, and a host of fantastic paid apps as well. So once again, when you hear this sound, and you want to see what Miranda's referring to, just look down at your podcast app. And now without further ado, here's Miranda Massey's keynote from Art plus Climate equals Change 2019, A Museum for the Path Ahead, New York City's Climate Museum.
1: I'd just like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people on whose unceded lands we meet tonight and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be here with us tonight. My name is Bronwyn Johnson. I'm the Director of Art plus Climate Equals Change 2019, the festival presented by Climart. It's worth remembering that in its latest report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, warns that we have 12 years to act to limit global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. In Australia, bushfire, flood, cyclones and drought are ravaging our country like never before. Nine of Australia's 10 warmest years on record have occurred since 2005. Australia's emissions are tracking at their highest on record. Australia is not on track to meet its Paris commitments. The climate emergency has arrived and it's happening now. But how do we make sense of the impact of global warming and what is the role of the artist and indeed the museum in these challenging times? US-based Miranda Massey is the director of the Climate Museum in New York City. Before launching the Climate Museum, Miranda Massey was a civil rights impact litigator, studying at both Harvard and Yale law schools and winning a multitude of honours. Despite a stellar career in the law, in 2014 she left her law career behind to start laying the groundwork for the climate museum in the belief that the climate crisis was at once the greatest intensifier of inequality and posed the greatest existential threat superseding all other jeopardy to civilization and humanity in tonight's keynote a museum for the path ahead new york city's climate museum miranda will address why we need a cultural shift in response to the climate crisis and why dedicated climate museums are a necessary component of that shift. Please make very, very welcome Miranda Massey.
2: Thank you all so much for being here. Before I go any further, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay my respects to leaders past, present and emerging. As you know, my name is Miranda and I'm here from New York City where I direct the Climate Museum and I'll be speaking about our programs and approach quite a bit over the next 50 minutes, but the the idea in short, our vision in short, is to mobilize the incredible transformational power that museums have across the arts and the sciences to build public engagement with the climate crisis and public action to arrest it. A huge thanks to Bronwyn and the incredible team at Climart, as well as the board and sponsors of this and the other work that your extraordinary organization is doing, pioneering the movement that we need on the cultural front to match the shifts in policy, in activism, and really in basic psychology. What you guys have been doing is extraordinary. It was, this was one of the first, if not the first, major climate and culture initiatives Now they're flowering all over the world. It's a remarkable thing that you've built and accomplished and a remarkable space that you've opened up. Climate and museums. This is the British Museum, uh, as many of you will know, and it captures some of the contradictions I want to talk to you about tonight. Museums are huge spaces for public engagement and community and trust. They also emerge out of histories of colonialist plunder and are currently, many of them, trapped in controversies over their funding sources. The British Museum has been a major site of some of the liberate-tate activism that, Becca, you spoke about last night. And so a question arises, what do we do with these contradictions? How do we mobilize a culturally conservative institution and form the museum for the radical change that we know we need? And I'm going to suggest to you that there's a an analogy that's important and powerful between museums and us as individuals, because we're actually all culturally conservative forms. We're creatures of habit, and we need to change rapidly and fundamentally to meet the challenge of what's happening. So to rise to the moment, to rise to the challenge that we face as a species and a civilization, we need to do a few things. We have to be wildly open to those changes that we have to make and I want to come back to that briefly in a moment in reference to Becca's and Jason's presentation last night. We have to accelerate the pace of everything we're doing about the climate crisis, and perhaps most of all we have to connect with each other in profound new ways that cross territorialisms that we all have a tendency to inhabit as human beings. They were adaptive up to a certain point, and they have ceased being adaptive. So we need to cross boundaries that we're not used to Crossing in order to come to terms with and overcome the catastrophe that we will otherwise face. And On the subject of changing, one of the many things that I reflected on today and was most inspired by, in thinking about your presentation last night, Becca, and I know some of the people in the room had the opportunity to hear it, was the relentless curiosity and observation and creativity that you at the Natural History Museum have brought to your work. So you're constantly adjusting, recognizing new potentialities, new strengths, and acting on them, exploring them, and then moving forward in that vein. And I think that that's an incredibly important model for us all to follow in the work that we do on climate. We inhabit catastrophe. Everyone in this room is aware of that. The crisis is accelerating, and so are solutions. Renewable energy is growing at an unprecedented rate. The cost of renewables is dropping rapidly. And there are Australian iterations of that story as well. These are Aboriginal rangers being trained in mangrove restoration, which, as you all know, is extremely important as a protection against storm surge, among other things. So we face this contradictory reality of an accelerating crisis and solutions that are also accelerating. And what that contradiction tells us is that another world is possible. Art is a part of bringing that other world into being. Here's the very first thing that we ever showed at the Climate Museum a year and three months ago. We installed that piece as part one of a show that we did about polar ice loss, humanity, and time. Um, And the idea was in part to get at The difference in time scales between geologic time and the time that we perceive as human beings on a day-to-day basis. One of the many things that makes the climate crisis hard for us to engage with and respond to adequately and properly is that it's distributed on a time scale and in space in a way that we didn't evolve to deal with. So if a lion came into this room right now, I would stop delivering this talk you guys would definitely stop listening to me, and we would all make for the exits. We should all be much more freaked out than that right now. Much more. But even a climate-conscious audience isn't, because we only started creating this problem quite recently with the invention of the steam engine. We only started understanding it 60 years ago. um, And it only came into broad public knowledge and understanding more recently than that. So our limbic systems, our adrenal glands, haven't caught up to the reality. that our ingenuity and drive and creativity have have brought into being. Um, So there's a fundamental problem there that relates back to the time scale. And there's also a contradictory way in which if we engage with the acceleration of time or it's slowing down, we feel the urgency of action in the moment. So we started this show, which was called Inhuman Time, with a window installation at Parsons School of Design, um, which is a a very elite and rarefied art school in New York City, for those who don't have reason to know. And if you see the the little box on the lower left-hand corner, that was a a video on a loop of what you just saw to make people aware that this large, beautiful image wasn't a high-resolution photo, but was the product of human touch. And when you get close enough to the artist's work, her name is Zaria Foreman. there's a kind of clinical degree of expository detail in her work but she makes the drawings as you could see with her hands so they bear the mark of human touch in a very literal way and there's a, a fascinating contradiction there too between this clinical exposition and the fact that the image took not a 1 1,000th of a second to make but as you could see about four months. We followed her work with a very different approach to polar ice in time. That is the same window from a slightly different angle. What you see on the rear wall of the gallery is a four and a half hour film that explored the science of ice cores via a trip down the Greenland Ice Sheet Project's core. Are there people in the room who are at all familiar with ice core science? It turns out that if you, if you, you can pull 110,000 years of global climate history out of the Greenland ice sheet by drilling a core and then reading the information that's contained in the striations and debris in the ice. So it's not not totally unlike tree rings in terms of counting years towards the top of the ice, but as it gets compressed lower down by the enormous weight of the, the glacial mass, um, the bubbles come out of it. All the white stripes that represent summer snowfalls that you'll see shortly come out of it. Some of those cores, uh, core samples they're called, when they're brought out, they have to be on the sur- at a surface level of pressure for a month before bubbles will <coughs> reappear in the ice. And the chemical information in those ice cores allows scientists to learn things not only about what was happening in Greenland 110,000 years ago, but what was happening all around the globe. So there's both local, there's local and regional and global information about climate contained in these precious records. The artist, Peggy Weil, that's her in the National Ice Core Laboratory in uh, Colorado where they, you put on like two sn- snowman suits uh, to go into this room that is in a double deep freeze to preserve this precious record of Earth's history. Uh, and then to the right you see during the fall break right before our show, she took over the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA um, Digital Lab in order to render this incredibly high-resolution digital information into a film form. The result created, and this reminds me of a, a phrase that you used last night, Jason, in talking about the Natural History Museum. This is how I always talk about this show, so it was quite striking. It was like a secular chapel. It was a chapel to science in this room. And I'll play you about a minute of the video in a moment. And if you take a breath and imagine yourself in this almost meditative space, space, this beautiful room with high ceilings and clean walls um, and experiencing a descent through time Again, the white lines are summer snowfalls. I wanted to get you to the beginning of that next core. You saw the break in texture. Um, that was the next ice core sample coming up, and there were 88 of them. Uh, and the film is called 88 Cores. If we had done the entire 110,000 years' worth of ice cores, assuming it had been technically feasible to scan them all, it would have been a nine-day-long film. But in any case, a film at very high speed, because it's nine days for 110,000 years. So even though it feels slow, especially after the uh, picture of Zoria scrambling around, making her beautiful big pastel, this is actually the fast film. We also had some still photography, as you can see here, and some artifacts explaining ice core science, also a bit about Arctic culture and history and the relationship of the, of the West to the circumpolar north. One of the several special programs that we did was a workshop for high school students on bringing the sciences and arts together for climate advocacy to impact their peers, and here you see the beginning of that. We loved this show, and we got a lot of attention and affection for it, and it was also a rarefied show. It was aesthetically rarefied. It was tucked into a beautiful gallery on facing Fifth Avenue. Um, in an elite neighborhood in in New York City. And it was also associated with one of the top, if not the top art schools in the world. It's a very design-forward and climate-forward university as well. So we were extremely glad to have done the show and incredibly grateful to Parsons for partnering with us on it, but knew that we had to do something that was more out in the world to start testing out our relationship to our own mission. So our next big show went from this small jewel-like gallery, downtown Manhattan, to um, across the city. We had 10 sites across the five boroughs of New York City. You could not have driven to them all in a single day in a car. You could do it in a helicopter, but not in a car. This is the work of an artist named Justin Bryce Griglia, who had the brilliant idea of putting climate-themed messaging on road signs. When you're driving down a road and you see one of these signs, you speaking of our limbic systems, you immediately go into a kind of alert. Something's coming up ahead. It's changing. I don't know what it is. My safety is in play. What a beautiful state of mind, what an act, anyway, state of mind to be in to start thinking about climate in an effective manner. Um, and so we put these signs in. 10 public spots all around the city. Some of the spots were arts-rich neighborhoods. Many of them were low-income communities and communities of color and some of the neighborhoods most vulnerable to climate change in New York. And both the Chinese and the Russian signs took an extra couple of weeks to put up because nobody had ever programmed uh, the signs before to use non-Roman alphabet letters. And uh, so, so people had to bear with us for an extra couple of weeks. But these signs were up all around the city for three months last fall and it was an extraordinary experience with we have 18 special programs with different partners across the city you'll see them you'll see them a little bit later on ranging from a one-man youth arts program for at-risk youth in the south bronx to world-class museums one of the special events that we did that was most impactful on me and i think for us as an organization in conjunction with this show was called Ask a Scientist Day. And we had scientists from NASA and other organizations fan out across the city. So there was at least one scientist and a community organizer and often a translator at each sign with a table and literature. Um, And the idea was that you could bring your climate science questions to the experts. People came out in droves. It was a miserable, cold, almost raining day, drizzling on and off all day. People came out in real numbers. This sign was in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and I was there for a while, surrounded by intergenerational conversations in Mandarin, Cantonese, Spanish, and English about climate change. And I was like, this is it. I'm in heaven. this This is what heaven looks like. And people didn't want to know about the science, actually. They wanted to know what they can do. And so we realized our next show has to do that our second show had to get out into the world and out into the city and out into the diversity of New York City with its many languages and many cultures and start to address the inequalities that divide our city. We knew that community was starting to form around the show and that we were having initial success in creating a space for people to connect on climate and think about it together, Um, but we also wanted to provide a dedicated space. Because part of our theory of change and part of the power of museums uh, to us is that there are spaces where people convene. Just like this is a different conversation than it would be if we were all online together. We're in the same room physically together as human organisms. That has a different meaning and texture emotionally than any kind of virtual experience can. So we wanted to create a hub space where, among other things, people could create their own climate signals. So here you'll see two that people typed into an app that we had made um, for the hub, change mind, not climate, and listen to the Lorax. I should know this. Do Australian children read the Lorax? Yes. Excellent. So both good pieces of advice, we can all agree. We also had, in the next room, an exhibition called Climate Changers of New York that picked 10 New Yorkers from different walks of life whose jobs in different ways were climate forward and were advancing us in the struggle to address the crisis properly. So you've got a school moving from right on over to left, you have a school teacher, a NASA program administrator, a museum professional at the Museum of the City of New York who thoroughly integrated climate into a show on future cities Two high school activists who led the New York City's youth-led This Is Zero Hour Climate march last summer. More on them in a moment and more on that in a moment. And then the um, sustainable finance lead at Goldman Sachs, a much less reputable bank than the Bank of Australia. Um, But nevertheless, a bank that has a strong policy of investing in renewables. Our existence has pretty much coincided with the development of a strong youth movement on climate. From my perspective personally, and I think institutionally, I, I can say as well that young people raising their voices on the inter, intergenerational injustice of the climate crisis is the biggest single likely success factor for the human species. I happen to know that there are some Australian climate strikers in the, in the room, or certainly were last night. This is from Sydney from March 15th, but I know that... Young people are out strong here in Melbourne as well. And we've sought in a range of different ways, both to organize contingents for different demonstrations at the youth marches. We also go to organize formal contingents at other climate marches. But we've made a special point of building a youth advisory council around youth programming, youth activism. Um, And this spring, uh, spoken word by young people, which we happened on Almost accidentally in our, in our very first show, the final slide um, for the first exhibition in human time was a young teacher addressing a, a room full of kids, and it was the workshop that we did on bridging the arts and sciences for climate advocacy. We gave those kids, for a design competition to, to finish off the workshop, we gave them big pads of paper and magic markers and iPads that, that we had borrowed. About half of them ended up doing spoken word performances spontaneously, And all of the adult mentors, we had rounded up a bunch of mentors from across the disciplines to work with the kids on their pieces and we were all absolutely transfixed by the power of young people addressing in a mindful and performative way what the climate crisis does, the violence that it does to their perceptions of their own future. It was utterly galvanizing and not at all depressing, on the contrary, incredibly energizing and hopeful. So we decided to scale that out and did a pilot program. And that's depicted here in this screen. This was in, in Utah at a conference. And there again, a, a room full of, in this case, mostly impact investors. So speaking very bluntly, a overwhelmingly white and male and middle-aged and wealthy crowd responded to these young people from New York City, several of whom had n- never been on a plane before, speaking their minds and their hearts about climate change in an absolutely transfixed and galvanized way to lead off the, the conference. And then there was a series of conversations that, uh, that, that happened between the conference attendees and the young people with the Climate Museum over the course of a couple of days. So it wasn't just a one-off performance, but a real, a real dialogue. And we've now extended that into a program called Climate Speaks, which will end with a performance June 14th at the Apollo Theater. Here you see a workshop, one of the workshops that we did across the city where young people, some of whom knew nothing about climate change, nothing about poetry, and nothing about performance, learn about climate change for a couple of hours, learn about writing poetry for a couple of hours, write poems, and stand up and perform them. The amount of talent in the human animal that can emerge when it's given space and support is um, a truism we're all familiar with, but it was extraordinarily present in those workshops. So we'll be at the Apollo, which for those who don't have any reason to know, again, is one of the most storied performance stages in in New York City. And anybody who's in New York City on June 14th, please get in touch with me and you can come as our guest. Very much looking forward to it. The students are now in a process of tuning their performances and we're winnowing down the numbers um, for this this big moment of intervention in the climate dialogue in New York. We are also this spring offering a, a second exhibition that is not about young people and not in their voice, but is starts from a starting point of inspiration and being urged to rethink everything all of the time um, in the way that we heard about from the Natural History Museum last night. And so we've been absolutely felt confirmed in our emphasis on culture and the arts as offering a pathway into climate engagement that's visceral and tactile, that's emotional and that's communal for people who don't currently have that pathway in. In the United States, that represents fully 65% of the population. 73% of people are anxious about climate change in the U.S., and 8% are speaking about it. Incredible gap, and also an incredible opportunity for those of us who want to mobilize the population around this issue. That's a, a, a very big and obviously variegated population of people who are ready to be activated, some readier than others, but who are already thinking about the subject and looking for a way to be involved. And that requires the opposite of complacency and it requires taking risks. So our response, both to the youth movement's call and to the hunger of the public at Ask a Scientist Day for what can I do, answers to that question, we are doing an exhibition that I unfortunately can't show you too many slides of, because not only does it not yet exist since it's opening (laughs) June 1st, but we're announcing it in about six hours in New York. Uh, So this is a little tiny preview and the graphics came after the deck was put together. But it'll start with a room that, first you walk into an entryway, and I have time to give you a little bit of definition on this. You walk into an entryway that's like a family portrait gallery of the youth climate movement around the world. So we have an open call for images and artwork from around the world that we'll put into this rather large hallway and stairwell of that single family house that you just saw an image of. So you start with the idea that it's imperative to change and accelerate now. Young people are giving us the energy and the push that we need to revisit our commitment and double down through their their demands. You then proceed into this room, the room that this mock-up depicts, which has proven scalable carbon mitigation techniques on display. So there's a renewable station. Each of the stations has a tactile, play-level element, a New York City, it's happening right here, right now, element, and then a global or international reference to get at the scalability of these technologies and approaches that we know with the right political will, can be made to work to mitigate our emissions and put us toward the right path, toward a sustainable future. So it's renewable energy. There's a food and land use station with, for example, food models that are weighted in relation to their carbon footprint, which results in some surprises when you pick them up, and an efficiency table. And so we're trying to get at the idea that it's real and you can see it and touch it and feel it, that it is already afoot. So it's not just hypothetically possible and proven in models, but it's actually happening. um, And then it can scale out. So the the second room is is a doom room. And I want people to call out guesses on how much the fossil fuel industry has spent on lobbying, not on advertising, not on campaign contributions, lobbying alone, since the Paris Agreement, which as a reminder was December 2015. So three full calendar years, no more. Just throw out a number in US dollars. Twenty million? A hundred million. Million. 100 million. 100 million? A billion. <laughs> One billion US dollars. Three years. In three years. How much has the National Rifle Association spent in lobbying in those same three years? And as you guys know, it is universally acknowledged by people of reason that the NRA has a death grip on American political culture. It is a cancer on the body politic. How much have they spent? Five billion. Fifteen million. It's off by two orders of magnitude. Two orders of magnitude. Um, A a second fact, so you walk into this room. Please don't tell any of your New York City friends any of this, because they don't know any of it. We want them to come to the show. Um, You walk into this room, and the question is on the wall. And then you have to engage with the answer by raising a trapdoor, essentially. So that's one of our factoids, um, data points. Another data point, um, uh, how much have the largest global banks uh, spent in financing fossil fuels again since Paris. Since Paris. Two trillion. Oh. Closer this time. Two trillion dollars, which is more than the number of dollars in circulation. This is an increase in pre Paris funding an increase and, again, gratitude and respect to Bank of Australia is accompanied by enormous, they're obviously dwarfed by those numbers, but enormous expenditures on advertisements with happy children playing in green fields of praise with like a windmill in in back of them. And that's on the part of both the banks and and the fossil fuel industry. So you'll pass through the doom room. You'll thus have predicates for specific actions that we're asking people to take. Great conversation with our board about this, where we said, essentially, responding to the zombie myth of institutional neutrality in museums, there's no point in being a climate museum if we're not asking people to take action. And really, in US political culture, the normal action that you ask people to take is to not eat meat on Mondays or switch the light bulbs in their house. And any thinking person recognizes, yes, if done en masse, that can aggregate across a society to make a difference in our collective carbon footprint. But it's clearly not enough, and we clearly need public-facing actions that people can take, including people who are not ever going to be part of the climate vanguard. People, the people in that 65% of anxious, silent residents of the United States, most of whom will never march in the streets and never join the young people on the streets of Sydney or New York or any other place. But they might send an email to their bank and say, listen, I'm looking at a climate-forward bank, and I want you to stop investing in fossil fuel infrastructure. That's homicidal and genocidal at this point. Who might call their member of Congress and their senators and say, hey, I want you to know that I'm a climate voter and we're in a new era now. I've been awakened by the youth movement on climate, and I am concerned about the fact that you've accepted fossil fuel donations. Will you pledge to stop accepting them? These are people who might consider joining a climate-focused group of one kind or another. There are people who might consider signing a petition on this spot, which we're writing to the major TV outlets in the U.S., demanding that climate change change questions be asked in every single U.S. presidential nomination and election debate this time. We need climate change to be a major focus of the next election. In fact, CNN just did a poll. The results were released today, and climate change is now the primary concern of Democratic Party voters in the U.S., Um, and that we can put down to the youth movement, which got an audience with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who very wisely and brilliantly decided to take up the call for a Green New Deal. This is a moment to pause and reflect on how quickly things can change. If you had told any observer in the US eight months ago that democratic candidates for president would essentially have to announce themselves on whether they supported a massive public works program focused on both the climate emergency and um, good jobs and justice, You would have been laughed out of that conversation. Um, So we're at a moment where change is accelerating. We have to do everything we can to support that. And this exhibition is our attempt to reach people with concrete, specific, actionable asks um, and to see them accumulate in. Is anybody here familiar with the the obliteration room project? It was at the Tate. It's, It's worth Googling. It's very cool. It's this art project. There's a huge amount of open thieving in this and every other thing that we do. Um, And so what we're stealing from the obliteration room, which is a white room in the Tate that was purpose created, gets covered up with these beautiful stickers. And people create patterns. And they start working in teams. And it's just a fantastic, mesmerizing project. Once you make your commitment to act or take your action, you get a sticker that reflects that. And you can put it on the wall. And we'll make a time lapse film of it. So we're trying to build what researchers call a sense of collective efficacy, which is really one of the guiding principles of all of our work. That's a term that's clunky and academic, but it combines the ideas of strength in numbers and a virtuous self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you if you are alone, then it's quite obvious that the challenge of the climate crisis is too much to deal with. But if you are have even a few other people, you can make a plan... And get some stuff done that needs to be gotten done. Um, similarly, the self-fulfilling prophecy: if you're if you're staying at home plate, ready to bat on a pitch, and you know for sure that you're going to strike out, which was always the case for me, um, <laughs> then you will, in fact, strike out. If you think you're going to hit a grand slam, it's not uh, it's not as much of a ironclad guarantee, but you're much more likely to do that. So our beliefs about will have what will happen influence what does happen, not through some supernatural nonsense, but because they affect our behavior, sometimes in ways that are too subtle for science yet to understand. And collective efficacy gets at that idea of people coming together to make change, building community, and and moving forward. This exhibition is called Taking Action, and it will be staffed by high school students, and it will be up through the end of October for anybody who has the opportunity to be in New York in that time frame or is visiting Um, We would absolutely love to give you a tour. And for us, it represents somewhat alarming departure from past practice. We've always worked with and through art for our major programmatic lists. And this is us speaking in the simple first person saying, among other things, we think that museums should get people to act. We think that that's part of their role and that there is no distant institutional voice that we should be adopting to protect ourselves against charges of bias. We should rather be embracing the idea that the only reason for having a climate museum, period, and and certainly in this moment of urgent need for action, is to give people a sense that in coming together, their action can matter. So again, sorry not to have more of the mock-ups for this show. You'll be able to see more mocked-up images of it as of six hours from now on, on our website. And um, we'll have some real photographs of people interacting with the different parts of it up, up soon as well um, after it opens on June 1st. We've been had our, our work magnified by, by press reception. I think, I think that journalists have found it um, an appealing way to write about the climate crisis, and this is particularly a couple of print outlets are starting to cover climate much more and much more responsibly. But even when we started 15 months ago, that was less true than it is now. Um, And at that time, there was still a fair amount of stigma around covering climate in the media, uh, shockingly, and a bias against doing so. And that's less true in the print media now, though still too true. Um, But I think because we were presenting a cultural view of climate and that felt fresh and different and in some way easier and softer than other kinds of climate coverage might be. We've been able to get the word out through the media a fair amount. More importantly for us are the response cards from visitors that let us know that our work is beginning to land and that just confirm the The sense that people need spaces where they can be together and think together about climate change and what it means and what they want to do about it. Where they can feel all of the different emotions from mourning and grief to anger to, in some cases, guilt to just overwhelm and anxiety and also feel that sense of collective possibility of collective efficacy. I think, in some ways, an interesting point of comparison between the work of the Natural History Museum, which we heard about, Becca's brilliant presentation last night, and the Climate Museum. It's a little bit like Women's History Month in the US, which you guys probably have here, or should, um, or Black History Month, on the one hand, or integrating those histories throughout the curriculum in general. And I think the Natural History Museum is basically creating a a cultural shift in the museum sector as a whole, so that museums, in particular natural history museums, can integrate climate programming and a wise approach to climate in how they address their ongoing programmatic work. And from our perspective, we see more and more museums of different kinds doing presentations on climate, and we see it as very much as a both and proposition. You need the dedicated space to explore all the nooks and crannies, and you also need the established institutions with all of their credibility and authority to start speaking up more. Returning to our question, how we rise to the moment? How do we meet the challenge that we face as a society and a species? And how do we mobilize the form of museums for the radical change we need? It's really the same answer in both cases. We turn to the strengths that we have, and we mobilize them. So in the case of museums, one of the key strengths, which Becca referenced last night, is their absolutely massive popularity. This is the first day, you can see the day going in tonight, the first 24 hours, they were open 24 hours the first day, of the Museum of Tomorrow in Rio, which attracted enormous numbers of people in this, its first day, and also over the course of its first year, including many people who, had not, who were not regular museum goers, So one strength that museums have is that they are incredibly popular. People go to them at really, really remarkable rates. Another thing is that museums reach us, much as art in general does, where we really live in terms of emotion versus reason. Because even the nerdiest person in this room is mostly a creature of emotion, not rationality. And museums allow us to connect and learn emotionally, including through awe, which is one of the most pro-social emotions, it turns out. And museums generate awe through scale and beauty, among other things. Um, Most often, awe, it turns out, is experienced, and it won't surprise you to hear, um, in the natural world, so not in a museum, inconveniently for us, and in witnessing human childbirth. And we can't become a maternity ward because we are definitely not staffed for that. So we have to find other ways to create awe. This is the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California. It's both a spectacular institution and a really successful one, and also really one of our closest predicates because it's really an ocean conservation activism project designed as, uh, disguised, excuse me, as an aquarium. And that's what we want to be for climate a, cl- a climate activism and activation project disguised as a museum museums communicate our values. This is the still new-ish Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. To say that museums communicate our values isn't to say that the values are uncontested. We have an open bigot in the White House right now in the United States, as you all are aware. These are highly contested values, but in constructing this museum, what we are saying as a society is that black culture and history is part of who we are as a people and a large and beautiful building and a space for people to connect with the complicated and difficult contradictions as well as the uplifting details of that history and culture, part of what museums use to communicate values. Museums are spaces of trust. This is the 9 September 11th Museum in New York City. On its first day of being open, it's a supporting column from one of the towers where you can see both functional emergency worker markers, and also heartrendingly photographs of missing loved ones that have been taped up. And you can see a number of conversations happening there. The service woman on the left with her head bowed. Museums are places where we can open up to difficult emotions like the emotions we will have all felt and will continue to feel about what's happening on climate process them rather than setting them aside and turning away, and move forward together. And there's polling that shows specifically that museums are trusted as sources of information on climate. Um, There's there's a specific um, uh, set of polls that's been done that says that on that subject in particular, the museum-going public trusts museums on the subject of climate. So trust is one of the key transformational powers that museums have in addition to emotional education, expression of values and popularity. And then finally, this is the National Maritime Museum here in Australia. Museums create space for community. In our view, perhaps their most important trait, They're they're a public good and a social good. They create a space where people can come together and relate to each other, feel supported and empowered in confronting what has to come next. So we have to be prepared to change. That's me as a civil rights and racial justice litigator. It became clear to me, as Bronwyn said, that the environment was the biggest site of equality and inequality as a, as a contradiction in our culture. And later then, that climate was the greatest intensifier of inequalities um, that we'll, we're ever likely to see. And when the idea of a museum dedicated to climate came into my head, It seemed so self-evident and fully formed as a notion that I 100% believed that I had read about it somewhere and was inadvertently plagiarizing. So I rushed over to my computer to see who was doing this excellent project so I could help her or him and discovered that, conveniently but exasperatingly, the URL climatemuseum.org was available and empty on the web. And there should be a climate museum on every street corner, in our view. And every museum can and should be more of a climate museum as well. And this is starting to happen. It's way too early to call it a movement. But there are projects starting to percolate up in different places. Here, the Climate Museum UK, according to the director that was inspired by meeting us at the first global symposium on climate Uh, Climate Change in Museums, which was in England last year, but there are a number of other projects percolating up in different places, long-standing exhibitions dedicated to climate and museum projects as well. But you definitely don't have to start a museum to change how you relate to the climate question. So, reminding you all of the Climate Changers of New York um, show that we did, with people in worlds stretching from finance to public education, um, there in the background is a, a person who does community solar installations in low-income neighborhoods in New York City, um, and there are many different ways of connecting with the climate crisis and reckoning with it, confronting it, and bringing your talents to bear. This is a, a collection of Climart artists and shows the, the power of engaging with the climate crisis through creative work of different kinds. Really. There's civic activism that we all can engage in. Don't just vote in your elections next month, please, for the sake of the world, but tell all your friends that you're voting on climate and insist that they vote too, with a sense of urgency because of what's at stake for people that we love, people who matter to us. These are three youth moments for the Climate Museum. At the top left is a climate justice mural that working with a community partner, we had kids envision and then paint a mural dedicated to climate justice at their school. Below that is the This is Zero Hour March. So that was the first strong expression of a youth-led climate movement in the US. You saw a picture of our contingent at it a little bit earlier. And then on the right there is Becca and Jason were involved in the March for Science as well, creating the graphics at the lead of the march and helping to organize the the march as a whole. We had a contingent, including this young woman who really liked Climate Museum stickers, as you can see. (laughs) Finally, the importance of working in new kinds of partnerships, new forms of partnerships, cross-collaborations that we haven't done before, those are always risky and sometimes difficult and time-consuming. Um, these are the partners that we've worked with in our first year. And you can see that they they range from very small and scrappy organizations to the Earth Institute at Columbia University, which I think has um, 1,000 employees. And one this is one of the largest centers for the scientific study of Earth on Earth. Um, Uh, as well as a number of cultural organizations and New York City's um, mayor's office. Um, this um, The kind of multiplying effect of building these relationships and collaborating across different sectors is super apparent to us, and we couldn't have done any of the things that we've started to do in our first small steps as an organization without these partners. To us, that's a key part of how we Rise to the challenge of this moment again is radical openness to improving, to observing ourselves, to being curious about what's working and what we want to try differently and being creative about how we respond to that. Accelerate what we're doing. Anything that you're doing now, take a cue from the youth movement and step it up. Double down, move faster, do more. And then finally, connecting the people in this room and with other people around the world who are like-minded and know that everything that we hold dear depends on what we... This young man participated in a citywide tile art project that we did where people of all ages, but in particular kids, were asked to draw about what climate change meant to them. It was it was a project that started in Rockaway Beach, and so a lot of the, uh, the, the kids, including this guy, were from Rockaway Beach, and the number of tidal waves that we saw because Hurricane Sandy, even though these kids hadn't been born yet, is imprinted culturally in their memory. Um, that storm surge was, um, was very instructive, so there's no sugarcoating the painful reality that we are in for more of that no matter what we do now. It's one of the things that makes climate advocacy so difficult, right, You can't say, like, let's come together for a super bright, super fabulous future. You have to say, let's come together to bend the odds toward a future in which this young man can imagine his heart and mind not filled with dread when he wakes up, and he can imagine having real spots of brightness and light in his world. Those are odds that we can bend together through cultural work, through intervening in museums, through creating new organizations, through arts festivals, and the incredible work that Climart has done across the years to advance this conversation and all of us in our own individual and collective ways joining together. Thank you.
1: Um, Miranda, my name is Stephen Harvey, and thank you for a great presentation. And congratulations on an amazing initiative for the Thanks. Climate Museum. Uh, my question is, um, in your experience, um, what's your view on artists in terms of their own footprint and complicity in using materials that they either create, produce, and discard in pursuit of their practice in climate?
2: Thank you. I, I, think, that, I think that's incredibly important. I can sign on to the measurement and just open discussion of impact. I, I res- respectfully disagree with the term complicity, though because I don't think we're morally responsible as individuals for the fact that we are all embedded in a fossil fuel economy. There's no way to escape that. You can go to Vermont and disconnect from the grid and engage in a barter trade of organically grown flowers, and you are still part of the fossil fuel world. So there's no... I I don't think it's productive to blame people for consumption that generates emissions or waste, clearly making attempts to reduce those things is responsible and correct. And clearly, we should all be speaking in a way that's not moralistic and that's, that's um, undefensive and pragmatic and transparent about the impact that we still have and, the, and what we're trying to do to reduce it. But our focus has been on public-facing actions and how we build civic culture around climate, because we think that's what's most necessary to change. That's not exclusive of the individual consumer-based habits or art- the habits associated with artistic production, but it is our focus. And it's where we think that we can most make a difference.
1: Are you actively looking for a space? In Manhattan at the moment for the museum because you, when you started this, we talked, we, you showed us a drawing that uh, the artist Oliver Allison
2: yeah. had created
1: for you for the Climate Museum.
2: Yes. So we are, we are not necessarily Manhattan, but t- tourist friendly and transit accessible in New York City. Okay. <laughs> That's the mouthful on that one. Our goal, we think the space part of a museum is really important. We also think we can't wait till we have a space to do the programming. Clearly, (laughs) Uh, the climate emergency is upon us. So if this programming can make a difference, then you can't wait till you have enough money to make a large, beautiful building in New York City, because that could be a while, Um, um, it turns out. What we hope to do in the interim is is create a smaller space that will help deepen the proof of concept for why the space matters and why a year-round dedicated hub that people can come back to matters, because it's become it's really interesting. A couple of years ago, before we started presenting the public programming, and it's not what we've done that's, that's responsible for this shift. It's the world that has changed it. We would get the question, well, why, why, cultural pro- why cross-disciplinary programming for the public on climate change? If it seems as intuitive to a person as it did to us, it's at first a hard question to answer, because you're like, duh, <laughs> well, obviously. But we developed better answers than that for that question. Um, we don't get that question anymore. All of our nice answers are totally irrelevant because nobody asks us that anymore. It's perfectly clear why this programming is helpful in, in meeting people where they are and having a multitude of different starting points that people can latch on depending on what their existing concerns are and their existing understandings and levels of commitment and all that. So that question is. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it'll be another zombie. But for now, at least, it's dead. It's down. People do still wonder about the space. And to me, looking at that beautiful museum that was built for the Smithsonian's African American History and Culture Museum, or even the complicated and contradictory but still spectacular and awe-inspiring space at the British Museum from one of the very first slides, those spaces matter They inflect our ability to come together with a mind that's open to contemplation and to connection and to thinking about things in a different way. You go into a museum, it's voluntary, um, it's not compulsory education. You've chosen to be there, and you're in that space. So in part, you're open to new things because you've chosen to go, but in part, you're open because the space The the literal space creates a figurative space for thought and feeling. So it's very important to us to work our way toward having a space, without any question be a matter of years before we have our big red ribbon moment. Um, But we're hoping to have a little one within the next couple of years.
0: In response to a thank you from an audience member and a comment that climate change is no longer a science issue but a communications issue, This was Miranda's reply.
2: We are huge supporters of the sciences and of doing inter- and cross-disciplinary work, but I do agree with you as a way of reaching the public. There's very few people who are reached by the hockey stick graph in a fundamental way where they live, and nobody, not anybody, not Michael Mann is reached in the same way by the hockey stick graph as he is by educational and cultural and emotional and communal points of connection
1: can you join me in thanking Miranda
0: Massey? As we release this episode from Melbourne, Australia, halfway around the world, in New York's historical Apollo Theater, the Climate Museum's Climate Speaks event will be underway. Young people from across New York City will be sharing heartfelt performances on the climate change impacts they're already feeling and their fears and hopes for the future. Please follow the links in our show notes to the performances to find out more. And we thank Miranda Massey, The Climate Museum, and Climart, Arts for Safe Climate, for allowing us to bring you her amazing keynote. We hope you've enjoyed it.
2: Climactic Collective collective.